This is God's word, Acts 1, 1 through 11. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. Acts three, eleven through 15 While the man held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. When Peter saw this, he said to them, People of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. You handed him over to be killed and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. You disowned the Holy and Righteous One and asked the murderer be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Acts 4, 3 and 4. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, so the number of men who believed grew to about 5,000. The word of the Lord. Our gracious God, as we come into this place with hearts in different places, uh, some of us exhausted from trying to feel close to you or to know you, Some of us exhausted for different reasons, exhausted for working hard to validate ourselves before the world in one way or another. Others of us come and we're at peace. There's been a sense that you've broken through the barrier into our world with us and you've answered prayer. You've been real. You've been loving. We've had a taste of you. And others of us wonder if we ever will. Some of us come doubting struggling with loss, 
um, while others rejoice. And from all these different kinds of places, from belief, unbelief, um, hurt or, or, or healing, we look to you and ask that your grace would meet us now because we're more of a mess than we care to admit to each other. But you move towards messy people with your grace. And that's the story of Jesus. May we learn and hear from it now because of your spirit. Amen. Uh, I'm intrigued by the different uh, characters that you find or the, the different accents you find in people's way of going about having convictions and then what, how they feel about sharing those convictions in our world today. I think there's some interesting things to note culturally and to just consider and think about. So let me just give two examples of different kinds of levels of carrying on to convictions or holding on to convictions and how you go about sharing them. One would be this um, comedian and illusionist and atheist named Penn Gillette. And uh, he has a couple of podcasts. He's a very provocative figure in the kinds of things he says. One of the things that's interesting is that, um, is that just, just his, the description of him and how he talks about it. He says his atheism has informed every aspect of his life and thoughts. And as such, is as crucial to him as theistic beliefs are to the devout. Gillette welcomes and even encourages open discussion, debate, and proselytizing on the issue of God's existence, believing that the issue is too important for opinions about it to remain private. So much so that um, at one of his shows, someone came up to him, a fan came up to him, gave him a Gideon Bible, a pocket Bible afterwards. And his take on it was, I'm not offended at all because I'm realizing that right here, this is someone because of their beliefs who's showing care for me. Even though he completely disagrees with their, their outlook and in their convictions, he says at least they're caring enough about me to try to help me from their point of view. So that's a very interesting take, welcoming, proselytizing, and having convictions that, he, that just trickle into every aspect of his life. That's how strongly he holds them. Now, I was reading an article that talked about... Um, the struggle of parents uh, in raising children and passing on their convictions. And I found that there was another um, atheist couple that was quoted and talked about, and they talked about some. They, they looked at it a very different way. They were they were struggling as they hold these strong convictions about science and about lack of God's existence. They were struggling with this impulse. They're afraid that so, any any dose of indoctrination would be passed on to their children, that in any way they would be indoctrinating their children in their atheism. And so, so they try to avoid that by um, providing lots of frameworks, other frameworks that their children might take on to as well as the one that they believe is their kind of divining, defining framework for their life. So it's two perspectives, right? We got one person saying, these things are important, we should proselytize. Someone else saying, I'm so against proselytizing that I won't even pass on my firmest, deepest beliefs to my children because I don't want to, I want it to just be an option for them. I don't want to feel like I thought it was all the truth and there was nothing else. So you say, which, okay, you've got two perspectives. You've got a spectrum here. Who's more representative of the world around us? I would, I would say that there's, there's no contest, that the, the second 
The second one is way more common and is an impulse that's not only, it's not foreign to you at all. It's, it's, it's very common. You know this impulse. You have it yourself. And, and even if you have a small dose of it, it's in spades in all the people in your life all around you. Avoid proselytizing. Avoid sharing. Don't share your deepest held beliefs. That's not what we do. In fact, people who do this, people who, who are devout in their atheism or in their theism or in whatever they are, people who are devout, people who are the target of billboards, you know, that would say, um, you know, have a, have a sense of a message from God or a message from the church, Catholics come home, or some of... People who are the targets of those things, if you're... And maybe you as well, maybe you consider yourself a devout person one way or another. If you are in one of those kinds of people, you are in a group, in a sense. And it, I think it's a dying group. It's a shrinking group of those who say, like Pendulette, I have devout convictions about reality, about myself, and I'm going to let those filter into every aspect of my life. And I'm going to say, if these are important enough to filter into every aspect of my life, I'm going to share those and try to help others see the light as well. Part of a shrinking group. You, you know this already. Your neighbors, your coworkers, your family and friends, they are going to find, if you have big, devout belief convictions, they're going to find you, in a sense, unintriguing, uninteresting. It just kind of passes right over. And the data supports it. The research supports it. That, you know, those surveys you, you fill out and maybe one of the first questions is, you know, mark a box. I am Catholic, Protestant, Evangelical, Buddhist, Hindu, Islam, Agnostic, Atheist. What is the, most, what is the, the biggest group that's increasing year by year right now? I don't know what, you, what anybody said. I can hardly hear, but... but What's that? Evangelicals? And you'd think it's one of those I listed, but it's not. It's, it's the none category. None. Nothing. As if I'm not even playing that game. I'm not even putting in the time to think about those things with big con- and, and shape a life around some sort of big convictional belief about reality. Since I was in high school, I'll let you do the math. Since I was in high school, this group has doubled in terms of how often people, the rate that people are checking that box of none. And I, I think it's just going to keep going. Um, I met, uh, or I have a friend who's um, just out of seminary and he moved to the Bay Area and he, he has this vision and this plan to, to do kind of what Lisa and I did here, is just try to start a church. And he's going to do this in the Bay Area. And so he's, he's brand new there and he's at a dinner party recently with like eight to ten people. And he tells me this story that that he's just talking to somebody and hardly anybody in the room knows each other. And so he's talking one-on-one with somebody and eventually comes around to that question, what do you do? You know, Ministers just, you know, we just hate it to go there because you never know where that's going to go. What do you do? And, uh, and so he explains that he's going to start a church in, in the Bay Area and this person was just dumbfounded, just perplexed, had no framework within which this fits. And he said after the person kind of stuttered and stammered and asked a couple basic maybe uh, clarification questions about that, then he said, wow, I don't think I've ever met a religious worker before. <laughs> I, I just find the, I, I find the innocence of that statement beautiful and, and representative of where we find ourselves. 
And I, I told him, I think you've got your title on your business card. Religious worker. Never heard that one before. Never heard that before. I don't think I've ever met a religious worker before. If you're someone who you're exploring faith in some way, you're maybe on the edge, you're, you're thinking, could this be something that's a part of my future, embracing the Christian faith? Or if you're somehow on the edge and you feel like you're losing faith, maybe the whole, I mean, let's be honest, sometimes people are in that other place of you're, you're kind of wondering, is this at all going to be a part of my future? I don't, I don't know. It's doubtful. If you're in that kind of place, then the faith that you're considering entering into and having as a part of your future is something that doesn't and will not make sense to most of your friends increasingly in the future, most of your family, most of the people around you, your coworkers. That idea of you know, saying, this is where I stand, this is where my life is going to be. Or if you're a Christian already, and you are baptized, and you read the Bible, and you pray, and you confess your sins, and you try to um, do these different things that are a part of this package that you've learned about. If you were to isolate, and this is a temptation and a possibility, isolate and just be around, you know, affinity group and people who are just have those same devout beliefs. And if you spent the next 20 years only around people who do all those same things, you could wake up one day and just go, whoa, I'm an alien in this world. I don't know how to talk to people anymore because this is so different from where most people are. This is, I believe this is the context within which we need to consider these, what become then, I think, jarring words that we read in Acts chapter 1. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. When you think about our context, it becomes difficult to wrap your mind around it. And let me just put this into, put that kind of the reflection of that verse 8 into some words of, some weighty words of some writers and theologians. One of them is John Stott. He describes what's happening here this way. The whole interim period between Pentecost, that's in Acts 2, and Perusio, or Perusia, sorry, that's when Jesus comes again, is to be filled with the worldwide mission of the church in the power of the Spirit. Christ's followers are both to announce what he had achieved at his first coming and to summon people to repent and believe in preparation for his second coming. Wow. Let me read a quote that's in your worship guide by Scott McKnight. Instead of simply summoning folks to church once or twice a week, the God of the New Testament sends the previously gathered church into the world to witness to God's saving presence with the summons to invite others into the saving presence. That's a lot of, that's a lot of witnessing and summoning and announcing. Can you even picture that, right, in, in this world that I think we increasingly live in with your friends? Can you even... Can you, can you wrap your mind around the pathway to bridge the gap between an utter disinterest and perhaps a devout conviction that you might end up having? In a world where our culture is allergic to proselytizing and parents are afraid to pass on their beliefs to their kids. In a world where, as one writer put it that I read this week, unprecedented numbers of people are constructing their own private and highly individualized faiths. This passage is coming to you and saying, public and communal. <laughs> I mean, it's pretty clear, right? It seems very public, and it's a community going out with this call to spread this message. Can you reconcile this?
Can you figure out, can you wrap your mind around it? I think this is the difficulty of, of making this transition. This is our dilemma today as we transition from a month of saying, how do you receive grace into what I think is a much more difficult month to, to ponder together? How do you share grace? It's all good to stop and think about what barriers do I have between the, the, the amazing love God has brought into my life how does, how does God break through those barriers? How do I need to open up? Now it's all about how do I move out with that grace? How do I picture that? How do I imagine that? And I give you this sort of extended inter- introduction in a sense today because I feel like it's weighty. I feel like it's the introduction for the month, for the difficulty of what this month is. And as we go through this answering this question, how do you share grace? We're going to look only in the book of Acts as the time when kind of it first happened, this grace first exploded and expanded into the world. And, um, and I'm one of those maybe crazy people who, who says, we today are still in the mode of the book of Acts. We are still in the period, if there is such a thing as kind of these, these eras of, of how God has revealed himself and what he's doing, we're in the same era. The era of, okay, Jesus came, died and rose, now there's the church, and someday he comes again. We're, we're in the exact same period as they're in. And so in many ways, you, you know, if you're comparing to a passage in the Old Testament and the Canaanite conquest or something like that, you say, well, there's a whole lot of filters you've got to kind of run that through. And with, at the period of Acts, you kind of say, there's less of that. There's more of that direct, like, this is how it works now in this era. So we're going to look at this. And today, just just let's see if, Three principles that come out of, of this passage, very briefly now. Um, three, pass, three principles and how they might inform and enlighten us as we think about how in the world do we share. And the three principles that I see here today are hearing Christ's command, receiving Christ's power, and keeping Christ at the center. Hearing Christ's command. Let's talk about that first. Hearing Christ's command. What is the command to these followers of Jesus? What are they commanded to do? Well, you know, you'd probably think you've kind of heard this reading and you kind of soaked it in and you probably think, well, you know, isn't it obvious? The command is to go out and share this message. I mean, it's clear. You're going to be my witnesses. You're going to go out. That's what it is, right? Go out and get started sharing, witnessing. That's, that's not the command. The, the thing that is mentioned in this passage as a command from Jesus to them is in verse 4. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. That's interesting. I'm reading this book by John Ortberg called Who is Jesus? Or, or Who is This Man? I think it's called. It's all about this dramatic impact of the Christian faith and, and the followers of Jesus and how it mushroomed out from the time we're reading about here into all these areas of life and aspects of life, how just unthinkable change has happened because of Jesus in our world. And you can kind of plot out a lot of those different ways that that's happened. It's a fascinating book. And there's other books written like it as well, basically saying look, the, the whole history of the world changed starting here in this passage that we're reading as is it transitions from Jesus has died and risen, and he, and, he, and he kind of goes up into the sky and leaves his followers with a commission, and the world changes dramatically. So if you, if you think that there's some dramatic mission and change that's going to happen, 
how do we imagine us starting out on that? Get, how does, what do we do if that's going to happen? We say, well, let's get started. Let's go and plan it. Let's go and tackle it. In a sense, we imagine what Jesus would say here is, show me what you got. Let's see if you're up for it. Let's see if you're up to the challenge. Let's get started. This is a broken world. Get out there, team. No, he says, stay put and wait. That is my command. I don't know if I like that command myself. I'm a doer. Are you a doer? You like getting stuff done? You like planning and being in control? You know, what's interesting, you might also, you might like it, because in a sense you might say, oh, phew, this whole thing about sharing my faith with people or something, I'm glad he says don't do anything, because I don't want to do anything. Just stay put and wait, don't, that's, oh, that's what we got to do, thank you, Mark, I'm very, thank you, I'm edified, <laughs> I'm so glad, I thought this was going to end differently. No, he, he doesn't say that either. And you know, if you've lived long enough in this journey of faith, if you've lived long enough to enter into spiritual waiting, if you've ever entered into a phase of waiting in communication with God, you know this is not nothing. There is a sort of waiting that, is, that you could chart out throughout the Bible that is key to spiritual growth. It's an incubation time. And you can see, there's no way getting out of this, because you can see what Jesus says. He says with total confidence, the verbs are future and they're confident. You will be my witnesses. You know, This Holy Spirit will come on you. You all have power. It will happen. It's as if he's saying, all right, your job is to wait and do nothing right now and incubate, and I'll make sure all the rest happens. I'll make sure you turn into the witness that I need. So... Hearing God's command, wait. Second, receiving Christ's power. What does it look like to have powerful witness, to have a a strong testimony in a sense of your faith? What does that look like? I think we have definitely ideas in our minds about this, and they've been informed by our culture and by our religious context. We have pictures of, you know, what an evangelist might be like. There's this famous evangelist, his name's uh, Billy Sunday, and this great quote about him where he says, listen, I'm against sin. I'll kick it as long as I got a foot. I'll fight it as long as I got a fist. I'll butt it as long as I got a head. And I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth. And when I'm old, fistless, toothless, or footless and toothless, I'll gum it till I go home to glory. And it goes home to perdition. All right. Isn't that a pretty picture of just this Christian gumming his way through life (laughs) to God's presence? There's a sense in that, like I read that because it just gives you this this picture, right? It gives you this this image you might have of of conviction and strength and power in, uh, in sharing faith. And you might say, I don't, again... I'm not real eager to turn, come out the other side of this process looking like that. I don't know if that's me, you might say. It's a little bit like maybe um, like Augustine is said to have, when he was be- exploring becoming a Christian, he said, he prayed to God, Lord, make me chaste, but just not today. <laughs> don't start today. <laughs> In a sense, Lord, make me some kind of strong witness, just please don't start today. 
I'm sure there's a better time. Make me an evangelist, but not today. Please, no. But, you know, if Jesus' words here are going to be fulfilled, it's going to take power somehow. It takes power to do what, the, what this passage is talking about. And the other quote in your worship guide by David Bosch, who's a, a great thinker and missiologist, someone who studies and writes about kind of what this, is, what this is, this whole mission thing. And he says, evangelism is that dimension and activity of the church's mission, which by word and deed and in the light of particular conditions and a particular context offers every person and community everywhere, a valid opportunity to be directly challenged to a radical reorientation of their lives. There's nothing short of a radical reorientation when you talk about what the grace of God does in your life. I mean, that's going to take some power, but can anybody here say that they, that you're, you're pretty certain that, that, that you can wrap your mind around that power, that you possess that kind of strength to facilitate radical reorientation in people's lives? I'll be the first to say I don't, I don't have a clue. I don't have even an ounce of that power to be able to somehow confidently do that. Radical reorientation of someone's life? You maybe know that that's happened in your life, some of you. Did someone else have that power? most likely you'll end up saying somehow mysteriously God did that through a long process of many small links in the chain, many micro decisions to give over another area of my life, another dark corner of myself to the light of God. So what does power look like? Is it you turning the crank and gumming your way to paradise? Is it the church harnessing and squeezing out every last little drop of energy, using as much guilt as we need to to get there so that we can crank that chain and turn that lever. No. Now, I, I have... This is a long build-up to just one word. Do you notice the big word in this, in this passage here? Verse 8. Here's the key word when it comes to this power. But you will receive power. How about that? You will receive. You will receive. You will receive power. I mean, so far it's looked maybe different than we've imagined. So far we're waiting and we're being told we will receive something. Doesn't that, doesn't that just those two words, waiting, receiving, doesn't that indicate a cert, some kind of certain posture? The church, uh, as we'll find out, as you read into chapter 2, it did. Just those kind of words just created a sort of context. And what it was was a prayerful context where they got together. There was a lot of prayer and a lot of asking and waiting for the Holy Spirit and the power. And I wonder if that's maybe true here in this community today. As we look towards, um, as when we come out of this series, at, at the basically right at the beginning of March, we're going to enter into a season of Lent leading up to Christmas, and it's going to be a season of prayer, where we're going to do intentional things to get together and just pray. Sermons on prayer, meetings every week on, for prayer. And I invite you to see that as a time to do exactly what this passage is talking about. 
wait and be ready to receive. Work on your receptivity to God's power. As you try to figure out the gulf between a conviction you might have and a disinterested, unintrigued world around you. And last, <clears throat> keeping Christ at the center. Keeping Christ at the center. So hearing Christ's command, receiving Christ's power, keeping Christ at the center. Um, it's very clear. <clears throat> Jesus says, you will be my witnesses. Witnesses meaning what they're going to be doing is basically like in a, think of a courtroom, is saying, this is what I saw. You know, so they're going to be going and just saying, you know, we saw Jesus, he died, and then we saw him alive again. And forgiveness of sins is what he said that was all about. And every, it's open to everyone. So the idea that they're just going to witness, they're just going to talk about what they saw, that it's all about Christ. It's all about Jesus and his saving actions, his death and his resurrection. And that pans out as you read the stories. That's why we included a couple other little references from a little further on in chapters 3 and 4. Because you see in those sermons, in those chances where they have suddenly, oh, now's the time to talk, I guess. There's all this crowd running towards me intrigued. Okay, I guess it's time to talk. Then they just start talking about what they saw. Jesus died. We saw him alive again. Forgiveness of sins. Um, keeping Christ at the center. It's not very complicated, really. There's a quote that um, I think is kind of interesting by um, George Eldon Ladd, a New Testament theologian, and he says, the transformation of Jesus' disciples from terrified, hopeless, disappointed band to the bold preachers of Jesus as Messiah and the agent of salvation was caused by his resurrection from the dead. Saying their focus, their sheer just, we saw this, this happened, we're going to go tell about it. The resurrection is all about just Jesus at the center. I invite you to consider that as a pathway, not only waiting, and may, or maybe while you wait and while you work on your receptivity, but to boldly fill your life up with Jesus, with his grace. To take bold, as bold steps to open yourself up to his death and his resurrection as possible whether that means making some kind of commitment to a group or to a learning experience or to a reading plan or to a devotional plan or whether it means giving away more as an exercise of trust in Christ that on the cross he became your treasure and all worth earthly treasures are very different now. Whether it means taking some kind of big risk or signing up for something, whatever it means, what can you do to open your life up to Christ at the center right now while you wait and while you pray and while you're ready to receive power. You know, in Acts chapter 4, this, this, this little phrase has always been so instructive to me, puzzling but also just marvelous, is in Acts chapter 4 verse 13, in this whole context of Peter and John, and they give this sermon and everything, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. What has to happen, in a sense, today, in your life, 
that it might be possible six months from now for someone to, to look at you and reflect and take note that it seems like you've been with Jesus. Hearing Christ's command, receiving Christ's power, keeping Christ at the center. Let's pray. Our God of grace, will you help us please? As we at this church uh, consistently for six plus years have tried to remember what it's like not to believe and to always make room for those who are not yet here. I pray that you continue to help us to navigate that sort of that sort of uh, borderlands place where, in a sense, we hang around the door of faith as people exit and enter. And we try to understand, what is that conversation like? What is it like to live a life that includes or somehow might have a sort of potency in its faith? And what is it like to be in a community that has a sort of... Um, sort of leaks out with its grace into the world around us. Help us as we, as we attempt to get there to be humble and to be willing and receptive. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.